Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. One week to a shutdown and no clear path to avoid one. Welcome to the fastest show in politics as most lawmakers head home for the weekend without a deal on spending, never mind funding for Israel or Ukraine, though the Speaker of the House says he will drop a stopgap bill tomorrow. We're joined ahead to talk about it by Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, the Republican from Indiana, grew up in Ukraine and will bring her unique view to the conversation in just a moment. Swing state voters more concerned about the border than threats from abroad. That according to new polling from Bloomberg and Morning Consult. We'll cover all these stories with our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Welcome to the Friday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. We do have a bit of news here. Seven days out, the government's set to shut down a week from today. Well, at midnight at least. And it appears Republican leadership in the House is set to drop a continuing resolution tomorrow. We're going to get actually a, a real look at what this stopgap measure includes, of course, aimed at avoiding a government shutdown. I asked the one person who got it right last time, Sarah Chamberlain, president and CEO of the Republican Main Street Partnership, about whether the government would shut down in one week. Here's what she said. Remembering, Sarah was the only person who told us the government would not shut down last time when that was the conventional wisdom. Here she is from Balance of Power on Bloomberg TV. I think in the very last moment we don't shut down, but it's <laughs> it's going to I'm going to sweat it more. Last time I was 100 percent confident from the beginning. What was different? This time I'm not. Um, to be honest with you, I knew Kevin much better than I know the current speaker. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a lot of faith that Kevin would, would cut the deals. I don't know the, the current speaker at all, to be honest. Um, but the Republican Main Street Partnership members are, are really pushing him because we're the ones that live in the bubble. We are the ones that will lose. We will lose the majority if the members lose. And they do not want government shutdown because all the polling shows it will be blamed on the Republicans. We'll see. One week from today, maybe we'll be playing that tape back. And that's where we begin our conversation uh, with the congresswoman from Indiana, Victoria Sparks, Republican, who has already announced her intention not to run for reelection and can speak freely, Congressman. I, congresswoman, I hope that's the case. Welcome back to Bloomberg. Uh, I wonder if you've had a chance to see this continuing resolution that we expect to drop tomorrow and what's in it. Well, I think we still have a kind of a discussion, but I always spoke freely, regardless if I run or not, you know, because I truly believe we need <laughs> to do so. it. So uh, I'll tell you one thing. I think the discussions we have, and I'll be honest with you, nobody is talking about shutting down the government. We are talking about it. How can we really force some appropriation processes and how we want to make sure that we don't have a last second, you know, omnibus from the Senate before Christmas, which has been done now for mm -hmm. years, which does the service to the people. And there is a way for us to come to find consensus on border security and have a debt commission. So maybe we have a better plan next year how to deal with crushing debt and inflation. 
I think it will be very hard since we do have a position on the, you know, from the Democrats in the Senate for us to do some more heavy lifting. So it probably will be much easier, you know, is much more simple resolution where it's going to be funding. I hope to more like mid-January, so we go over the holidays, so there is no pressure to do bad bills. Also, it hits 1% okay. cut that was agreed, and also maybe adding Israel with some offsets. I think that is kind of discussions we have. Okay, got it. Um, our reporting says that the speaker is looking at this idea of a laddered CR that would not be uh, a whole bunch of deadlines, but in fact, two. One group of appropriations bills yeah. expiring in January, the other in February. Does that sound like a plan to you? Yeah, listen, it, it's an option. You know, it makes it a little bit complicated for us to explain what it is, and it will make them for the Senate much, you know, they will try to jam something, you know, probably with mid-December, because that's the goal of the Senate, to jam something to us, and right before Christmas to force everyone to vote for omnibus. So I think that's an option if we can try to do a two-tiered CR. One of them will go to mid-January, and there are some appropriations we already passed. And we really, in the Senate, passed some too, but forced us to go into conference and actually have a true appropriation process where we try to agree, not govern through omnibuses. So that's, I think, the intent, yeah. you know, and I think more Republicans are inclined to have this two-tier CR. You know, we just need to decide with timing. So we need to make sure that they're not going to send us something last second before everyone leaves and it's going to be something we don't want. So unfortunately, too much mm. politics, but uh, we'll see what majority of Republicans. I am open to do either one as long as we're not okay. doing something before Christmas. Do you need to see cuts to vote yes? Listen, if we actually go through January 15th or 19th, we actually already will have at least you know, modest 1% cut, which is better than right. Congress yeah. done for years now. So because we already, you know, and uh, during debt ceiling negotiation, we had a lot of people call it messy cut because Congressman Messi trying to be realistic because with inflation, even have 1% cut, it's already actually a huge cut, right? Considering our inflation, mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, so I think that will actually will do a cut. You know, I think adding more stuff, maybe Israel with offsets, I think it will be very, very difficult. Some of my people do want to have border security. I personally big, you know, proponent of debt commission, but it might have to be dealt a little yeah. bit later this year. I want to ask you about that debt commission, and I'm glad that you brought that up. You actually threatened to resign from Congress uh, a little over a month ago during the last funding debate. Specifically, you said if a debt commission was not passed this year, you said in a statement, quote, there is a limitation to human capacity. Congresswoman, you said if Congress does not pass a debt commission this year to move the needle on the crushing national debt and inflation, at least at the next debt ceiling increase at the end of 2024, I will not continue sacrificing my children for this circus with a complete absence of leadership, vision, and spine. You write, I cannot save this republic alone. There's still no debt commission, Congresswoman. Will you resign still if one is not created? Listen, we got much more progress, and it took me a while to move Kevin McCarthy in the right direction. Speaker Johnson, in his swearing-in speech, he actually brought this issue. So I'm glad to hear that he's understand to see this policy. But we just been working on the Senate, and since he was serious, we actually just had Senator Romney mention and some other Democrat and Republican That's Senate right. senators introducing it. You know, yeah, just yesterday. So day before yesterday, they introduced it. So I think it's important. And we see some movement in the Senate on a bipartisan basis to be serious and have a genuine conversation. So, we'll, you know, mm -hmm. we will see what is going to happen. I think it's a, 
you know, border security and crushing debt, it's two major national security issues. We've been neglected for a very long time, but I think they become serious enough if we don't start doing something and just continue doing politics, because people don't realize whatever we govern right now in the next few months, the rest of the year, everyone will be doing politicking and doing election campaigns and fundraising. So nothing serious is going to be happening legislatively. Let's just be honest. So we have to become adults in the room and do something in governing, not do politics and campaigning the right next day after the election. It's irresponsible. You sound as passionate as ever, Congresswoman. Are you sure you want to resign? Well, listen, I don't know if I'm going to be, listen, I said, because I told Kevin, if he's not going to deal with serious issue, I said, I'm going to assess the situation, but I don't give up easily. I'm working very hard, and I think we're getting Senate <laughs> on the traction, too. So, I, 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 listen, we had, I had a lot of fights. Kevin was a nice guy, but he definitely didn't like to govern. Mike Johnson is much better speaker on governing. He truly wants mm. to deliver for the people on issues that shouldn't be partisan Border security and debt should not be partisan issues. And I'm glad, you know, I've been working extremely hard with the Senate, reaching out to all of the sides of the aisle myself. And I'm glad to see that Senate finally start moving a little bit. We should note uh, to our viewers and listeners that you voted against ousting Speaker McCarthy uh, just for what it's worth, Congresswoman. I'd like to ask you about Ukraine Uh, You, of course, grew up in Ukraine and have a unique view on this funding debate. You've made it clear that you support funding the war effort, but you also have suggested that you want to see accountability on how that money is spent. What would it look like? How how would that accountability or audit be uh, strong enough to satisfy you? Well, I think first we need accountability, but also, you know, accountability, a lot of money actually is that's supposedly earmarked for Ukraine. They don't even go to Ukraine. They go to a lot of associated causes, which became a slush fund, which kind of does disservice to this effort. But also to make sure that we know what the strategy is, because President Biden tells one thing on TV, but his action has been slow working the aid and really been very weak, you know. So, and you only can, you know, deal with aggressors like Putin with weapons. And usually only 10 to 20% of money goes directly to weapons. The rest goes to some other things and you cannot win the war. So he needs to be honest. What is his strategy and how the strategy and actions could be aligned together? And I think this is the conversations we need to ask because we have a lot of issues. We have to deal with a lot of domestic issues and we want to be strong abroad because countries like Russia, China or Iran causing a lot of headaches and they're all after us. But we need to have strengths and strategy when we deal with stuff like that. And I think that's going to be a discussion and president owes to Congress and American people to explain what's happening and also to be more transparent and why it is in our national interest. Because Ultimately, mm-hmm. we need to understand that all of these issues are going to be affecting us and they're destabilizing the whole world. And what's happening in Israel is not by accident. Can Ukraine win this war? Ukrainian people, you know, will eventually win this war, war because, you know, the, the, the millions of lives destroyed. It's a matter of for them how, how many lives it will take, you know. Because millions of lives are already destroyed, hundreds of thousands of people already killed, families destroyed. I mean, the country was through so much suffering. Now you have a very difficult situation to reconcile. And unfortunately, we're not was decisive before the war in the first year of the war. Because, and Russia now is being destabilized. And they're very good at hybrid warfare. They're destabilizing Europe, Middle East, mingling in Africa, making deal with Iran and China and, you know, North um, 
career. I mean, they, you know, listen, don't underestimate, you know, the former KGB apparatus, how they're good at buying and, yeah. you know, destabilizing. I mean, they try to destabilize us here, too. And I think the social media is becoming even, you know, and more and more they have capabilities on that. And so I think it's important mm-hmm. for us to you know, have peace through strength, to have strong strategy, but also have an actions because we need to have allies. We need to support our allies around the world, but we also need to make sure that we tough with aggressors and we also need to make sure we deal with domestic issues first because if we're not strong internally, it only benefit our adversaries. Well, Bloomberg is reporting that advocates of aid to Ukraine uh, are dangling a lot of dollars in front of lawmakers based on military contractors and other firms that are in their states. If you look at the potential windfall for companies like General Dynamics and Raytheon, now RTX, uh, it might be difficult for lawmakers to say no to this, knowing that a lot of this money is going to stay here in the U.S., Congresswoman. Will Ukraine aid pass? Well, listen, I think, you know, and I, and, and truly, we actually, you know, even we help, even though, you know, United States, we force Ukraine to give nuclear weapons and have a piece of paper. So, but, but regardless of what it is, I actually prefer that we would have done it through land lease, where we actually not just give the money, but Ukrainian government is go all the money back. That would have been my preferred way to do it. And also we need to, you know, show American people what a benefit it is and how it is you know, how important for Ukrainians to win that war. There are a lot of implications on that. So I don't think that's how people look at that. But I think on Ukrainian aid, unfortunately, we'll have to leverage some domestic issues. And that's a discussion Republicans have. We want to have tightened border security legislatively, because if we don't protect our border and now what's happening with terrorism on the rise in the Middle East, it's become a serious issue. We, we, ha- we will have a huge problem internally. So I think a lot of Republicans want better oversight, more clear strategy, but also have border security in return, you know, of any mm-hmm. foreign aid, and particularly Ukrainian aid. Congresswoman, it's good to have you, and I appreciate your time today. Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, the Republican from Indiana, giving us a little bit of a sense about what we might see tomorrow when this continuing resolution is dropped by the Republican Speaker in the House and what might follow next week. We'll take a quick swing with our panel before a deeper dive ahead with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Jeannie, the laddered CR, we were told, was a non-starter for Democrats in the House and the Senate. Is this just another waste of time? I, I think it is in the end going to be. We also heard that from some Republicans who are terribly concerned about this approach as well. The, you know, limited as we are in time, the smart thing to do is a clean CR. To waste time doing this walks us ever closer to what you were just talking about, which is a potential government shutdown that it is in everybody's interest to avoid. So I do think this is a problematic strategy, but one the speaker, the new speaker, feels like he has no choice but to pursue at this point. Hmm. We'll have more time for this, Rick, but do you see a shutdown in the cards in one week? Yeah, very well could be. I mean, it's very unusual to not have any real clear indications from the speaker as to what form and substance the uh, the CR is going to take. Uh, it, very hard to whip votes. Uh, I'm, I'm not getting any indication that he's aggressively even going out and whipping votes for this CR yet. We're going to get into this in more depth with our political panel coming up, along with new polling data from Bloomberg and Morning Consult. As we get back to this issue of the border the Congresswoman was talking about for swing state voters, that's more important than threats from abroad. We'll get into that straight ahead on the fastest show in politics. This is Bloomberg. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The fastest show in politics as we skid into a weekend here without a plan in sight on avoiding a government shutdown just one week away. Though, as we were just talking about, I'm glad you joined us here on the radio on the satellite and on YouTube. We are going to see a bill tomorrow. Speaker Johnson set to unveil his continuing resolution. We'll find out if it's laddered or not. And that is uh, the idea here. Some of the appropriations would expire in January, others in February. And that would not avoid a 1% cut, as we discussed uh, a little while ago with Congresswoman Sparts. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, and we've got our panel together, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, helping us understand what's going on here. Uh, The debate surrounding Ukraine funding, which is something that the Congresswoman supports, a native of Ukraine, born and raised in Ukraine before moving to this country and becoming a lawmaker, that tied with border funding, and we're going to talk quite a bit about that now. We've got new polling data from Bloomberg on the border, is a non-starter for Democrats, at least for now. Remember Chuck Schumer just a couple of days ago on the Senate floor calls it a poison pill. A group of Senate Republicans released a proposal for border security that they want in exchange for Ukraine funding. And they know full well what they came up with is a total non-starter. Instead of putting together common sense border policies that can pass in divided government, Senate Republicans basically copy and pasted large chunks of the House House's radical H.R. 2 bill. And it's looking like Ukraine funding will not be part of a continuing resolution. This is going to take a minute. With no agreement between the two parties or apparently the two chambers, let's bring the panel in on this. Rick Davis, we've got numbers from Bloomberg and Morning Consult today. Swing state voters put border before Mideast and Ukraine conflicts. How does that inform for you, the debate that we're about to hear combining the border and Ukraine. Yeah, it was only about three weeks ago that we were talking about the border um, uh, funding being actually a drag on uh, some of this uh, uh, supplemental spending. Uh, But if I'm Mm -hmm. a Democrat and I'm looking at 2024 and the kind of numbers we've seen in the Bloomberg poll out today, that uh, I'm going to jump on board the funding for border in a minute, in no time at all. Because if they don't, if they're not seen as being productive, if they're not seen as being protective, if they don't look like they are trying to ensure border integrity for the United States, they're going to get punished in 2024 because this is an issue that has only gotten stronger as more people come across the border. Mm. The numbers are hard to deny here, Uh, Jeannie. About three times as many voters said immigration is their top issue in the 24 presidential contest as those who said the same about the Israel-Hamas war. 68% of respondents in the Bloomberg Morning Consult poll, and we had a sample of almost 5,000 people, say they approve of funding for border protection, a larger share than the 61% who back aid to Israel, and the 58% who favor aid to Ukraine. You can see the chart here if you're with us watching on YouTube. So I could ask you this in a couple of different ways, Jeannie. Do you agree with Rick? For starters, Democrats need to get on board, or is it more nuanced than that? Do Democrats need to start delineating between the so-called border 
and immigration policy, because they're two very different things. You know, if you look at the package that the president put forward and has supported, it does have funding in there for the border, for Taiwan, for Israel and for Ukraine. So, you know, they do that 106 billion does include that. And I have long said, and this poll, the numbers are very big to your point, seven out of 10 Americans in this poll registered voters in these swing states, importantly, supporting or approving funder, funding for border protection. That is no surprise. Look at the results on Tuesday. Democrats did well on the issue of abortion, but you look at my home state of New York and you see yep. some bright spots for Republicans. The Suffolk County executive race, the biggest executive race or the biggest county in the country, Republicans won and they won it on the back of border security immigration issues. And that is going to repeat itself across the country. Crime and security will always best foreign policy in the minds of voters unless we have boots on the ground. So since we don't, it's always going to best that in the minds of voters and come in, you know, a close second to something like the economy. So this is no surprise. The administration and Democrats have got to get a handle on it. People, this is their daily lives experience. In New York City, 100,000 people came into the city and the shelters are overwhelmed. That is just one city. That's where people are living. They don't feel like we have the ability to sustain that without federal action on this issue that we've been waiting for decades to get federal action on. So yes, they should absolutely take this opportunity to fund the border with Israel and with Ukraine and Taiwan. Let's look at these states here. It's Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, North Carolina, and Wisconsin. This is why it's more important, frankly, than a national poll, so we can really zero in here uh, on the results. Rick, Donald Trump leads Joe Biden 47% to 41% across the seven states in this poll. Are we done with this conventional wisdom that Trump is the one man Biden can beat? Yeah, I think that uh, this kind of blows that out of the water. Uh, Bloomberg poll of a month ago actually had Trump at 47 also, uh, but it had mm -hmm. Biden at 43. So it's actually a couple points right. uh, uh, down for Biden. So uh, Democrats have to wake up and realize they're in a they're in a they're in a fight. Uh, where's the Biden campaign? What what ads are they running right now? Uh, positive ads about Joe Biden. I mean, this idea that they were somehow enthusiastic about Donald Trump being their not the Republican nominee against them is 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 juvenile. I mean, it it doesn't actually portend a good outcome for Biden based on these polls. And so uh, I'm I'm actually amazed that there's not more of a fight right now going on with the Biden campaign. Uh, you know, I I was told just the other day they're not even polling. Uh, so why would they even know if not for Bloomberg, you know, that they're in a they're in a horse race? <laughs> well, we're doing what we can here. Uh, Jeannie, are you growing worried about numbers like this? You remember, we've been hearing this for months and months. Just don't you know, we don't want Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley because they might win. We want a rematch with Donald Trump. Is that flawed thinking? You know, I don't think so. And I'm going to surprisingly take exception Ad Impact just came out. The Biden campaign has spent $39 million today on advertising for 24. That is much more than the two previous presidents. So they are out there talking. They are out there spending. 
He was just in Illinois yesterday. More importantly, we all talk all the time about the fact that you can't combine these states. Let's not look at this 47% number. Let's look at these states individually. The numbers okay. are better for Trump than Democrats would like, but it is in five of the seven states that they are within a margin of error. So, yeah, yes, they're tied Trump in Michigan, Jeannie, to your point. That is correct. Well, 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 I would even say, yeah, tied not only in Michigan, five states when you look at the margin of error. So, you know, to say Trump is ahead in in six of those states is a misnomer because it's in five of those states that they are within a margin of error. The margin of errors in polls matter when we don't tell people that they expect that these numbers are sure. solid and they are not. They are a probability and they are within a margin. That said, I am the biggest uh, you know, skeptic on some of this stuff and very pessimistic. The campaign has got to focus on the economy as much as possible, but more importantly on the messenger. People are terribly concerned about Joe Biden's age. They yeah. have got to do what they can on that. And I don't think we can separate out those two. And by the way, I would take Biden over Trump with 94 indictments and facing criminal charges over the next year, <laughs> any day of the week, even though he does have an age issue that he's got to contend with and inflation as well. I'm sure you would, uh, Jeannie. That would have been news if you said differently. I, and look, I, I appreciate the perspective that you bring here. That's why you're both with us. But this is not the layup, clearly, that a lot of people have been making it out to be, to Rick Davis's point. Great conversation on the poll, and you can read a lot more about it on the terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. We're doing this every month with Morning Consult. Next hour, in fact, we're going to have the deep dive on the numbers with Eli Yokely from Morning Consult. So I hope you'll be with us at 2 o'clock Washington time for that. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And so they will finally meet at last. President Biden, President Xi. Next week, as the headline screams on the terminal, Biden, Xi set to meet November 15 and the sidelines of the APEC summit. We knew that was a possibility, but the confirmation here is important. God knows they have been winding up to this one for a while. Let's go all the way back to June. Remember that little balloon that was floating over Montana? They were supposed to meet around that time as well, and that certainly delayed things. This was Joe Biden on the 22nd of June. We had an incident that uh, caused uh, some, uh, some confusion, you might say. But, President, but the Secretary Blinken had a great trip to China. I expect to be meeting with President Xi sometime in the future, in the near term, and uh, I don't think it's had any real consequence. We'll see about that. Uh, it's been a challenged relationship, as we've discussed in great detail here on Sound On and across the platform here on Bloomberg. Think about what's happening with the chips, with NVIDIA, with Apple, never mind 
the drills that we've been seeing in the South China Sea, the building of military installations around the global south. Great concern here in Washington about the way forward with China. Haven't even mentioned Taiwan. Let's reassemble the panel for their thoughts on this and the stakes ahead for this meeting. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us, uh, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Rick, November 15, uh, I suspect the administration will keep expectations as low as possible. Is this a, an icebreaker at this point? Just a chance to be in the same room or can they get something done? Yeah, there's no question that they need to break the ice. I mean, relations could not be more poor than they are today. I mean, most pundits would uh, argue that we're in a full-fledged Cold War with China. And so this may be the first time that these two leaders get together under those kinds of circumstances. Uh, and I would say that uh, I think the the Biden administration's expectations are rightfully low. I mean, it's pretty bad when you say one of the top things you want to get out of it is the ability to communicate. Nah, I don't get that. I mean, like, communicate what? Well, we want to have military conversations. That's it? I mean, what happened with the Uyghurs? Where are we with, you know, military incursions in the South China Sea? I mean, like, there are a lot of issues yeah. to discuss, but just discussing as a priority seems a little weak. So the goal again, uh, and this has been the goal in the past with these two, Jeannie, I suspect, is to get to another meeting. This is someone Joe Biden referred to as a dictator a couple of months ago. How, how much can they get along here? Yeah, it, it's going to be very interesting. Their first face-to-face -face in over a year, and, and relations have been incredibly fraught. And of course, to your point, everything that happened surrounding the balloon and the way the United States responded didn't help. And in the meantime, of course, we have what's happening in the Middle East, and we also have the continuation of what's happening in Europe. And you find the United States and China deeply divided and on both sides of those issues. And so there is so much for them to discuss. It is frightening that they have not done that in over a year. So communication is critically important, but arguably it's not enough. And I think the White House, you know, they are right. They're not going to expect anything big out of this policy wise, but hopefully they set up to your point for increased communication and not just with people below the two presidents, but with the leaders themselves, because we've seen a lot of back and forth, particularly people from the United States, Blinken, Yellen, others going over to China. We need to have these leaders meeting in the way they are next week, and we need to have them addressing some of these critical issues that are dividing us. As Yellen just said, these ties are critically important to us and to the world, and they need to be shored up in a substantive way going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, Rick, to Jeannie's point, it's been over a year. Last time uh, these two sat down or spoke was at the G20, Bali. That was November of 2022. W what does it say to us that she is actually crossing the ocean to come here this time? Because we know that he has hardly left uh, the country since the beginning of COVID. Yeah, I would argue that it's probably a higher priority for him these days than it is for us. You know, failing economy, like um, you know, all kinds of foreign policy issues uh, barking at his doors, you know, failed relationships with Russia over the Ukraine war. I mean, you know, he's got some issues and I think it's probably important for him to try and turn the page on U.S. relations because any kind of thing that would upset trade relations with the U.S. right now, 
uh, could have a really bad salutary effect on Chinese economy, which he does not need mm-hmm. right now. Last time she was uh, on U.S. soil, Genie was 2017. Remember the setting? Mar-a-Lago. How does Joe Biden follow up on the venue here? We haven't been told where exactly they will meet other than the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, it it will not match the opulence of Mar-a-Lago. There will be no Donald Trump portrait in the room. Um, You know, he's not going to Rehoboth Beach, um, but it'll be substantive (laughs) nonetheless. San Francisco is a beautiful place to be. They can find a great venue. But I think the most important thing, I mean, it's stunning to think 2017 before most people in the United States were even thinking about or ever heard about COVID, how much has happened in the world. And that's why this meeting is so important. And given how this was questionable, whether this would in fact take place, the fact that we hear it will definitely take place is critically important. Mar-a-Lago or not, they'll have to, you know, go without Donald Trump being the DJ at Mar-a-Lago for a little bit. (laughs) Come on, that's not fun. Rick, I've only got 30 (laughs) seconds here, but would you contrast Mar-a-Lago and make this the most stark setting possible, maybe serve you know, Subway sandwiches or something? I don't think you have to uh, uh, downplay it that much, but just being in San Francisco is pretty stark. It's not like that city's at the top of its game, you know. Hopefully she won't get carjacked. (laughs) I was waiting for it. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On. Welcome to Friday. It was a short, I had a three-day work, a grueling three-day work week. And I don't know, Kaylee, I... The shorter the weeks are, the longer they feel. I'll never understand it. I agree with that. But also every single week feels like a month or two in and of itself. Yeah. So, you know, time means nothing to me anymore. Well, especially when you're Kaylee Lyons and you host four shows a day <laughs> and do all that while you're sick. But hey, welcome to Friday. It's good to see you. We have new mm-hmm. polling data. Yes. Uh, pretty fresh, too. This broke on balance of power less than what was it, 12 something, 24 hours ago? 21 hours ago. Thank you. Um And it is making a dent here because we spend a lot of time obsessing over national polls that, frankly, don't mean a lot. And, boy, when you look at the swing states here, we did this a month ago. This is Mm -hmm. the update now, whether it's Arizona or Georgia. We're looking at some real struggles for Joe Biden, not only on the horse race, but specifically when it comes to issues. They're arguing about, we talk about it every day, funding for Israel and Ukraine, whether that would be tied with border funding. Swing state voters care much more about the security at our border than yeah. they do anything going on the other side of the world. Yeah, that's what the poll shows. 68% of voters in these swing states would rather fund the border mm-hmm. or are, are supportive of funding border security on the border with U.S. and Mexico versus, say, Israel or Ukraine funding. And that is problematic, potentially, for a president who has really tried to be a America's back president, right. a foreign policy president, a globalist in a way that is quite opposite to the former president, who was much more of an isolationist in Donald Trump. And yet this this poll also shows that they trust Trump more than Biden on a lot of these foreign policy issues. Yes. And in terms of the horse race, are we going to finally dispel of this idea that Donald Trump is the one man Joe Biden can definitely beat? And not worry so much about who might come in second, because when you put these together as an aggregate, it's 47-41, a wider gap that Donald Trump holds over Joe Biden than even a month ago. 
Yes. And I think given the consistency here that it's showing up, not just in this Bloomberg Morning Consult poll, but in a lot of other polling as well, Mm -hmm. I think that notion might have to be put to bed, at least for the time being, given what we are seeing consistently in voters' opinions. So we set the table here. Let's bring in the experts. Eli Yokely is with us, political analyst at Morning Consult. Eli, welcome back here in Washington at the table with us, Gregory Cordy, Bloomberg Politics reporter. It's great to have you both here. Gregory was distilling the numbers on the terminal. Uh, Eli helped to uh, generate them to begin with with our partners at Morning Consult. And Eli, I'll start, I guess, with that very same question. There was some argument about it last hour here uh, on Bloomberg, and Republicans and Democrats clearly don't agree on this. But Joe Biden can't claim that Donald Trump is the one person he can beat any longer, can he? This race is neck and neck. Probably probably not. I mean, even when you add in the independent candidates like RFK Jr. and Cornell West, the race is a head-to-head contest in most of these states. Clearly, Joe Biden is struggling with the the kinds of voters who voted for him in 2020. I mean, one of the most striking things in this survey is his 2020 voters are less likely to say they support him today than Donald Trump's are. He has a problem with his Democratic base that is weighing him down in all sorts of questions. Well, and Gregory, that might not be his only problem. I know you spent a lot of time buried in this data trying to distill it. And and isn't it what it shows that things that the president is spending a lot of his energy on, say meeting with Xi Jinping next week, pushing for funding for Israel and Ukraine, are just not the things that voters care as much about? Yeah, as president, you can't always pick your issues that come Hmm. to you, right? The buck stops here. And uh, when it comes to issues like the Israel-Hamas war or the Ukraine-Russian war, that's that's an issue that the president's got to deal with. When presidents do have a choice, they generally like to wait until their second terms to take on foreign policy. It's a Mm -hmm. legacy project because they've already survived that reelection effort. And here you have President Biden being forced to deal with issues on the world stage while U.S. voters, especially in these swing states that we've surveyed, are still very much focused on the economy. Inflation is still the number one issue within that economy issue group. And uh, foreign affairs ranks way down the, the list of issues that voters care most about. You talk about border uh, security. How about when it comes to the economy? This is still the overriding issue that's going to decide this election, is it not? Look, the economy is always the issue. Uh, It's become a political cliche. The old, uh, was it Jim Carville or George Stephanopoulos line? James Carville. James Carville. It's the economy, stupid. Uh, and it's still the economy, and stupid. It's always the economy, reinforced stupid. reinforced that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and especially when times are bad. When, when times are good, people have the luxury more so to argue about social issues mm-hmm. and foreign policy and other things. When the economy is bad, it's the only issue. Mm-hmm. And voters are telling us uh, that the economy is bad. Now, mm-hmm. we might look at economic indicators and say, well, look, the, the, uh, the unemployment rate is still near historic lows. Right. The inflation mm-hmm. rate is coming down now. It was very high, but mm-hmm. it's on a downward trajectory. Uh, voters aren't feeling that quite yet. They still feel like this is an economy that hasn't quite recovered from the pandemic. And they're blaming Joe Biden. Why? Because he's the president of the United States. When you're mm-hmm. president of the United States, whether you cause the issue or not, you're accountable for fixing it. But you made the point as well that if the economy was bad, we wouldn't probably be obsessing over all these other issues. Isn't that, Kaylee, then its own indicator? I guess. That makes sense to you, Gregory? Um, I'm sorry. I, I, did I twist that around? The <laughs> yeah, economy yeah, that, is good. Yes. When the, yes. Then, then that people, gives people may have yeah, more. Yeah, we can get upset about a lot of things. Yeah. But if it's not, 
Then we, so it, it just speaks to the issues that we're discussing in this poll. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that you're hearing from the Biden campaign in the White House is an emphasis on issues like abortion. Mm -hmm. We saw that mm -hmm. this week with the elections in Virginia and Ohio that uh, in, in some ways were considered a, a referendum on that issue. Um, and in those places where abortion was on the ballot, either literally or by, by proxy, uh, Democrats did very well. Mm. And so, yes, we're going to see in the next year Joe Biden continuing to go back to that issue because it is one that motivates Democratic voters. Mm. Eli, to bring you back in the conversation here, we're talking about what motivates Democratic voters and Republican voters. And, of course, we're looking at the poll here and what is presumed to be who the ticket the tickets on either side is going to be it's going to be Donald Trump uh, versus Joe Biden and yet there are room there is room here for third parties and that was evident in this poll as well RFK Jr getting what 10% mm. could that get even more disruptive potentially I mean I think some of that is people just being unhappy with the candidates they have right now I mean a good chunk of voters like 10% support RFK another share say they'd back somebody else, both sides of the aisle are not thrilled about their nominees, despite the fact that Joe Biden and Donald Trump lead their respective primaries by a lot. Um, but, you know, clearly there is some unease in the electorate about re-elevating these people. But at the end of the day, I mean, this contest between the two candidates the American people have is going to be a close one. And, and I think that the survey uh, proves that. We're spending some time with Eli Yokely at Morning Consulting, Gregory Cordy uh, here at Bloomberg, looking over our polling results here. Jeannie Shanzano, Eli, in our last hour, our Democratic analyst who's an expert on polling, a political science professor, took some issue with this idea of producing an aggregate number from swing states, many of which were within the margin of error. Is there some truth to that? I mean, maybe, but we look at the specific states and the numbers are all pretty similar. I mean, both Joe Biden in each of the states that we surveyed uh, does not have voters trust to handle a range of issues. The economy is clearly the top issue. Um, the Israel issue ranks pretty low in all of the states. And Joe Biden is almost losing in most of these states. And, and to that point, Gregory, on Israel ranking very low, I believe 3% of those that were surveyed said that that was a top issue for them going uh, into this election especially given the ongoing conversations on Capitol Hill about how Israel should be funded, what conditions may be tied to it, whether or not Ukraine should continue to get funding at all. Results like these theoretically could give members of Congress some cover hmm. in not supporting that, right? Yeah, so th this is uh, th these numbers on uh, Israel, on Ukraine, on the border, complicate Joe Biden's life in two ways. One is he's trying to get this $106 billion yeah. supplemental spending bill through Congress. And he's doing that by trying to give a little bit to everybody. He's, he wants to include Ukraine aid, Israel aid, and the border. And there are majorities or at least pluralities of Americans in these swing states that support each one of those. But sometimes they're different majorities in mm. each one of these areas. So you have Republicans that are very much split over Ukraine. Republicans very much want to support Israel. But on Israel, that's wh where Biden starts to lose some of his own Democratic right. base. The more progressive you are, the younger you are, some minority groups uh, are disproportionately opposed to uh, supporting Israel. And one, Biden thinks he should be doing more to help civilians in Gaza. Hmm. And so if those voters are disillusioned by Biden going into 2024, they're not going to vote for Trump, but maybe they stay home. Hmm. 
Biden's got a, a, a difficult uh, balancing act here, especially in college campuses. This is a big yeah. issue, as we've seen. Does it grease the skids, though, Eli, on getting Ukraine funding passed if it needs to come with border security funding? More Democrats might be on board with this idea when they see numbers like these. I mean, funding the border is very popular across party lines. This is an issue that kind of, kind of unites the American people, and it's one that President Biden performs very, very poorly on. He needs to get a border win on the immigration issue. If he can keep these things together, perhaps that could work. The problem is this Ukraine issue is now politically divisive. Republicans on Capitol Hill see no real motivation to work with him on this, at least in the House. He's also some Senate Republicans are with him. But this is going to be a big lift on Capitol Hill. And this, this survey, I think, suggests that focusing on Israel and the border may be the path forward for now. And of course, we have to keep in mind that this survey was completed as it was set to be released before we got the news that uh, Senator Joe Manchin is not mm. seeking reelection mm -hmm. in 2024. Obviously, it could be problematic for the Democratic Party in terms of keeping a majority in the Senate, as that seat may very well go to a Republican. It shifts the math. Right. But also this idea that, OK, maybe we really are going to get a unity ticket from no labels and maybe very well we could see Joe Manchin on it. Eli, has Morning Consult done work on what note labels could actually see in terms of support if they were to decide to run a candidate? I think that might be showing up in some of the someone else we have here. There's clearly a chunk of the electorate mm. that is open to it. I think the way we've thought about it more is, is thinking about the Senate map. I mean, Joe Manchin, yeah. Joe Manchin leaving the Senate makes it a huge lift for Democrats to try to move forward with a Senate majority. They're on tough turf in all of the competitive states right now. Joe Manchin was losing his popularity in West Virginia. Uh, the Republican nominee is one of the most popular governors. The man who's going to be the Republican nominee probably is one of the most popular governors yeah. in the country. He was probably going to lose that race. And so this is going to be a big lift for Senate Democrats moving forward. You went there, Kaylee. So let's go there to the video, Joe Manchin from yesterday. I will not be running for reelection to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. A movement to mobilize the middle, Gregory, what would that look like? <laughs> Here's the issue with that is that there's there's a. Uh, there's no money in moderation, right? Joe, Joe Manchin that? gets uh, some of the lowest proportions of small dollar donors to his Senate campaign of any senator in the country. Because if you're a small donor do dollar donor, what do you get excited about? You get excited about Ted Cruz or Elizabeth Warren. There's not a lot of passion in the middle. And that's, mm. that's one of the big challenges that No Labels is going to have, that, uh, that Joe Manchin is going to have. Maybe it's Larry Hogan or a Chris Sununu, a moderate Mitt Republican. Romney. Mitt Romney. <laughs> uh, who are the people who are going to go out and circulate signatures on a petition to get Joe Manchin on the ballot right. in 50 mm -hmm. states? Uh, I'm sure they exist. Uh, but, you know, look, we have a two-party system. And the, the, under our system, you win a party primary, you automatically advance to 50 state ballots. When yeah. you're an independent like Joe Manchin, you've got to start that process from scratch, and it's getting late in the game. Ross Perot did it. He yeah. was the last person to do yeah. it. Um, and we're seeing, I think, the, the highest watermark for these independent and third-party candidates that we've seen in 30 years. Wow. But it's still, uh, it's still quite the lift. You're going with Mitt Romney, huh?
Mansion I just Romney. threw it out there. I mean, you're not the first to suggest it. They put up that debt commission bill together yep. yesterday, same day he made the announcement. Eli Oakley at Morning Consult. Thank you, Eli. Thanks, as always, to Gregory Cordy. With Kaylee Lyons, I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Live from Washington, where the blockade against military promotions is still in place, and it has been for nine months. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lyons. And Kaylee, this, of course, comes down to one man, a lone senator, yep. the coach, Tommy yes. Tuberville, the senator from Alabama. He's nine months into this thing, and we're yep. looking at somewhere in the area of 370 military promotions that are on ice in his protest of the abortion travel policy at the Pentagon. Yeah, a policy that has affected a much smaller number uh, well, than, sure. than the number of military members of the military who've had their promotions held up at this point. So it becomes a question of where the off-ramp is and at what point we ultimately reach it. There was yes. obviously a meeting within the Republicans in the Senate earlier this week about potential uh, end games, what would need to happen in order to get around this or for Tommy Tuberville to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. Just still not exactly clear what that is and if that is achievable. And in the meantime, there are a lot of individuals, including Democrats, that yeah. are looking at workarounds. Democrats, even Republicans, said Joni Ernst, yep. bring, uh, so mm -hmm. that the idea is fine then. You don't want to pass them in a block. We'll bring them individually, one by one, on the Senate floor. And that's what Tim Kaine thought he mm -hmm. would try yesterday. He said, all 363 of them, if I don't run out of steam. And so here's Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia, in the outset here, this is a bit of a, of a saga that we're going to walk you through. I ask unanimous consent that the Senate proceed to the consideration of the following nomination. Calendar item 46, Colonel Lee A. Swanson to be Brigadier General, that the Senate vote on the nomination without intervening action or debate, that if confirmed, the motion to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table with no intervening action or debate, that okay. any statements related to the nomination be printed in the record, and that the president be immediately notified of the Senate's action. So nothing Is controversial there an here. objection, mm -hmm. Mr. President? The senator from Alabama. I object. Yeah. The objection I object. Is heard. That's Tommy Tuberville. He was on the floor for the whole thing. By the way, Tim Kaine set up a military day from Alabama sign behind him, a happy birthday Marine Corps, and a Veterans Day. By the way, uh, happy Veterans Day. Yeah, and thank you to all who have served. You're part of our show today. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Uh, this is probably not going to make you very happy. So that was Cory Booker uh, presiding over the Senate. By the time John Fetterman got there, this turned into a bit of a sitcom. <laughs> is there an objection? Mr. President. Uh, the senator from Alabama? Object. Uh, objection is heard. Is the next item calendar 229? 
Mr. President, then I ask the same request that it be in order to make the same request with respect to calendar item 229, Captain David E. Ludwa, to be Rear Admiral Lower okay. Half. Try again on a different. Is, <laughs> is there an objection? Mr. President. The Senator from Alabama. I object. The objection is heard. The objection is heard as we bring in the General Mark Kimmett, retired Brigadier General, former Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. General, it's good to see you and welcome back. I know John Fetterman was laughing there, but it's not obviously uh, a very funny matter with these promotions held up. Tommy Tarberville showing no signs of stopping. He's even standing on the Senate floor to go through 300 of these at a time if necessary. What should be the strategy in dealing with this? Well, I, I'm not a politician, nor do I understand Senate rules, uh, but it's clear that we need to get these people on the job because it's not just 300 officers, it's 1,000 officers. Uh, why is it 1,000? Well, if the commander is not in the job, then the deputy commander has to take over. If the deputy commander is not on the job, then the assistant commander has to take over, uh, and the deputy assistant has to take over for him. So essentially, you have three people in temporary jobs having to do the work of four, and that simply has an effect on not only readiness, but candidly, good order and discipline within the unit. Well, what you hear consistently, though, General, from Senator Tuberville is that this isn't impacting military readiness, that the military is still functioning. And what we hear is that it's not just about readiness, readiness in the moment, but what the future ramifications will be for the U.S. military in terms of retention, in terms of recruitment. Can you just expand upon that? Well, I think those are two different issues between retention and recruitment. Uh, candidly, you're talking about the generals at the very, very top of the pecking order. I'm not sure any private uh, considers uh, that he will either stay in the military or not stay in the military based on a general's promotion. Uh, however, some would say this is just a symptom of a larger malaise within the military, uh, most exemplified by the services that can't recruit enough uh, people to come in. Don't think it necessarily has an issue to do with what Senator Tuberville is doing, but there are a lot of other issues that are keeping our young men and women from joining the services. General, we've discussed the argument uh, before that this is not uh, a major impact on readiness because there's a chain of command, and that's the point of the structure in the military. How long uh, can that argument be made? Well, again, at the general officer level, uh, a very long and uh, unfortunately uh, bad period of time, but uh, a long period of time. But uh, look, if you take a look at uh, the battlefield, I was watching the documentary last night or the show The Pacific and watching those commanders die on the battlefield and those young lieutenants taking over and those sergeants taking over. I think at the lowest level, the ground tactical level, and at the highest level, the strategic level, the military readiness will not be impacted for a very, very long period of time. Uh, but I'm more concerned about those other issues that you referenced, recruiting and retention. But on the idea of readiness, and you say it may take some time in actuality, in reality, for readiness to have an impact, what about just the perception though, when when people or countries 
abroad are looking in and considering the U.S. military force, knowing that all of this is going on? Well, I would say other countries looking in have got a lot more, uh, a longer list of items that uh, they're going to be looking at in terms of uh, the downward trend, in their view, on the United States. Uh, we still have the best military in the world. I think our adversaries certainly understand that this is just some tomfoolery in the United States Congress. I don't think any enemy is saying, well, uh, I wasn't going to attack last week, but this week, since Tupperville is playing games in Congress, let's go. Hmm. This could go on indefinitely. This could go on for another year, General. We could still be having this conversation around election time. What will it mean for the military by then? Well, first of all, I'll take that bet. It looks like uh, the United yeah. States Senate on both sides of the aisle are recognizing that this is, you know, it's it's just tawdry kind of politics. And uh, so people like Tim Kaine, it looks like they're stepping up to the plate and try to work their way through it. As we look to what may still be ongoing by this time next year, there are also ongoing wars we have to consider in Israel with Hamas, Ukraine versus Russia. And obviously in Congress, it's not just a matter of getting members of the military promoted. It's a matter of providing aid and funding, which is a subject of much debate. General, if they can't get around to figuring out a compromise on funding quickly, what's the implication? Well, now you're addressing the real readiness issue, what really has a challenge to do with our operational capability. If we don't have airplanes or the airplanes that we have are too old to be effective, if we don't have enough ships, uh, if we don't have enough uh, weapon systems for our troops, that is going to have a significant effect on readiness. And that's less about what Senator Tuberville is doing with promotions and far more to do with both the House and Senate not providing enough to the procurement accounts and the investment accounts of the United States military. That will make a difference. That will provide an incentive to our adversaries to take uh, more risk than they otherwise would have taken if they know the United States military uh, is not the premier military in terms of not only troops, uh, not only in terms of training, but if they don't have the tools they need to defeat or deter our enemies, that has a much larger impact than the promotion rate inside the U.S. military. General, we appreciate the insights and thank you for joining us on this Veterans Day. We don't always have the opportunity to say thank you for your service. So be well this weekend and thanks for joining us on Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, like, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.